0: And welcome back to the Rooster Crows podcast. My name is Judy Pressman. This week, we're taking time to talk about time. Most spiritual traditions make promises about time. In Buddhism, people are told that if they meditate enough and reach enlightenment, they will escape the cycle of reincarnation. In Christianity, we're told that if we live a good life, we can achieve eternal life. But what does eternity mean? Is it a really long time or something else? Today, Reverend Stephen Milton talks about time and eternity with Professor Benjamin Olshan of Philadelphia, who is currently writing a book about the nature of time. Dr. Olshin is also a musician, and will be hearing some of his music throughout the podcast. We start with this first bit from a song called Late to Percolate.
1: Hi everybody, uh, Stephen Milton here, and uh, today we're going to be talking about time and eternity. And I want to talk about eternity because it's something that people often wonder about in spiritual terms, but there's no way to talk about eternity until you've uh, actually understood something about time. And time is a very slippery subject, so I've asked for some help. I'm going to be talking today with Benjamin Olshan. He's a former professor of philosophy and history of science. He taught in Philadelphia for many, many years. He's written a wide variety of fields, from the history of maps to ancient technology. He has all sorts of cool books, including one on Marco Polo. And recently, he's been doing research in the philosophy of physics, including the nature of time. So, welcome,
2: Ben. Thank you for having me on your podcast, and I'm looking forward to this conversation.
1: Me too, and and full disclosure, Ben and I are actually friends. We go back a long time, Um, so uh, if we seem to make fun of each other, (laughs) that's why. But um, Ben and I uh, are going to talk today about time, and time, you know, you'd think it's pretty straightforward um, in that, you know, a hundred years ago, say, if we were having this conversation, most North Americans would probably say, well, time is the Christian version of time. God made the world a long time ago. And eventually, time will end when Jesus comes back to judge everyone. Uh, A new heaven and a new earth will be created, and the virtuous will live with God in eternity. Now, of course, if you weren't Christian, you probably didn't see time that way, but most North Americans were Christian 100 years ago, so that was just the version of time that we had. But now, very few people really believe that it will go down like that. Both Ben and I are science fiction fans, and if you watch science fiction movies, one of the things you've probably noticed is that the future belongs to catastrophe. Uh, Pretty much any science fiction movie you watch now, um, there's some kind of apocalypse. Sometimes it's environmental, sometimes it's killer robots take over, sometimes it's aliens, other times it's nuclear war, but pretty much, no matter what sort of narrative you look at, the world is going to end badly, And no one really has any idea of what kind of positive future might lie out there. And even the Star Trek movies, imagine that there will be some sort of worldwide nuclear holocaust, but out of that will come the first experiments in warp drive and first contact with the Vulcans and things will get better. But first, it's got to get really, really bad. So our culture has kind of lost faith in the future. Ben, would you agree with that?
2: Uh, I would. And I actually want to step back a second and give some background about uh, how, I guess, we both got interested in the subject of time. And I noticed Steve is already talking about sort of social and historical issues, which we're both interested in. I think one of the things we shared uh, in childhood, even though we didn't know each other as kids, uh, was an interest in science fiction, which I always promote not just for entertainment, but as a really good way of sort of non-academic people coming to understand really interesting social issues. Um, I also want to highlight this because it may come up later. Uh, Steve mentioned that I had written a book on Marco Polo and maps because I had studied uh, the history of cartography uh, at University of Toronto, and then. During that time, I did some very, very different studies as well. I did philosophy of physics, and I wrote a a book recently on philosophy of physics. But I just want to highlight that these things all intersect because they're all about mapping. How do we map time? How do we map the future? How do we look at things like where the human race is going, things like catastrophe, etc.?
1: So that's really interesting about, you know, the way you've been uh, kind of mapping things and, you know, We map time, right? I think most North Americans sort of see time as a kind of linear linear thing, and we map it, but the weird thing is we're coming to the edge of the map, and we're not sure what's on the other side of that edge of the map, right? It's like the map is ending, and so we've, as a culture, and our science fiction shows this, science fiction kind of being like a kind of secular form of prophecy, we've lost faith in the Christian idea of time, but At the same time as that's been happening, scientists in the 20th century started to think about time in a very different way, which a lot of the general public doesn't really understand. And I'll admit that I don't totally understand this either. So I'm kind of hoping, Ben, that you can fill in the blanks on explaining they've lost faith in what might be called Newtonian time. So
2: could you sort of explain that? So Newton's idea was that time is absolute and it's often described as like a clock running in the background of the entire universe. And it's important to understand that in the Newtonian view, even if nothing is happening in in space, there's no events, that time is still seen in this model as flowing continuously in the background. So it's very illy defined but it's just there, like an entity. And
1: when does, sorry, when does Newton come up with that theory?
2: So this is, you know, we're talking in 18th century, and it kind of works at the the same time that we have uh, clocks being developed as sort of a, a normal part of society. Clock time, this idea of a universal standard that then comes sort of in the Napoleonic age, etc. So there's definitely a cultural intersection with a scientific uh, conception of time. I mean, of course, Newton also is operating quite likely from some many ancient concepts of time as a continuous flow. And that's a word that's very problematic that we'll come back to later. Okay, so Newton gives us that sense of there's a
1: grand sort of cosmic clock, which is just ticking, ticking, ticking in the background no matter what's happening.
2: Correct, correct. And then Einstein comes along, and I won't say he discovers or invents a new view of time. He also kind of stumbles upon a very different view of time, really through a convergence of of many ideas that were already existing when he's thinking, which is at the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century. So, you know, people think of Einstein as this lone genius, and he was a genius, but he himself fully acknowledged that there are other people involved. There's Poincaré and other physicists, and then there's his own teacher, Minkowski, who invents the the idea of space-time. But in short, Einstein's idea that he develops into two fundamental theories called the Special Relativity Theory and the General Relativity Theory, they say in very rough terms that time is relative, which means that if it flows, right, to use a very approximate term, it's going to flow at different rates depending on the observer. So an observer in motion, particularly classically, like in a spaceship, traveling at a very high velocity, time will flow more slowly for them than for a person who's fixed on Earth. Now, the person on the spaceship is not going to notice that, but according to something called the the twin paradox, which is sort of the textbook way to explain this, if one twin left and went on a journey on a spaceship and came back to Earth, He or she would have aged much less than the twin who remained and the twin who remained would say for example 10 years have passed and the twin who traveled would say well no only one year has passed and again if you like science fiction and you want to see a good illustration of this you can see the movie interstellar uh, which had the science sort of double checked and scripted by a very famous physicist named kip thorne i think it was he who did it Um, And the sort of sublevel to Einstein's ideas that kind of seep into the culture and get at the stuff you, Steve, want to talk about is there was this implication then that there is no fixed universal time, only what one measures and experiences locally. And then even deeper than that, this implies that we are limited in what we can say about the universe as a whole about time and its relationship to the universe about the universe in time.
1: In Interstellar, what happens is uh, because the people on the spaceship are traveling very, very quickly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're experiencing time in a different way than the people who are, say, back on Earth or on one of the planets that they're trying to find, right? Like that's right. Weirdly, like seven years can go by as they do a very short journey down to a planet because of that time differential. That's so, right. is it? It's so it's not geography. It's not just geography that says you know planet A has different time than planet B. That's not really it right? It's more it depends how fast you're going or how fast you're accelerating.
2: So uh, so technically what we're talking about is called time dilation, again, which is the passage of time at different rates. And according to Einstein's two theories, uh, two things can happen. So if a person is traveling at a high velocity, particularly a near light speed velocity, uh, the time that they measure will be different from a stationary observer. And, of course, I'm simplifying this enormously. The other thing that can happen, and I think this is also illustrated in interstellar, is that if a person is near a, a large gravitational mass, um, if a person is near a large gravitational mass, then... Th- for them, also, time will pass more slowly. Uh, so I forget what movie it is, but there's a movie where a spaceship is circling around a black hole, you know which is impossible, but it's representing a significant mass that time passes more slowly. And they've done experiments, by the way, on this, even right on Earth, that for someone that, who's on the ground floor of a building closer to the gravitational center of the Earth, time will pass more slowly than for a person at the top of a building. And you can measure that dilation or differential. So the gravitational effect is predicted by the theory of general relativity and the velocity effect is predicted by the theory of special relativity.
1: That's so weird, because I gather they've done tests right where they put an atomic clock on the ground, an atomic clock on a plane, mm-hmm. and the plane, because it's going faster than the, the clock on the ground, will actually come back and the two clocks don't match anymore. Exactly.
2: They did this, I think the first time they did it was probably right at the very end of Einstein's life. So he got to see, I believe, experimental verification. It was done in the 1960s. Uh, on a passenger jet um, and they carried atomic clocks that's exactly what they did and the experiment has been done in different ways and it's been done with subatomic particles etc so the experimental verification for this is relatively straightforward there are more complicated issues which I can get into subsequently about science's um, models of time but yes what you've said is, is absolutely correct as we stand now. So I guess, I mean, one of the, you know, this is all kind of mind-blowing
1: stuff, right, for us uh, people who aren't used to these ideas because it sort of suggests something that we took to be an absolute, just ticking away at a constant rate in the background, it's actually like time is ticking away at different rates all over the universe, like all over the
2: universe. That, right? That's correct. So it's it's completely localized. Um, so it's impossible even to say that there's a fixed standard. There's relative standards. So, you no, know, if you and I are... Our friends and I go fly off and come back, we can use your standard for time and you can say, Ben, you've been gone 10 years. And I can say, no, Steve, I've always looked younger than you, but also, yes, I was just (laughs) away for a year. Um, Yeah, and that kind of uh, locality and dependence on locality was one of the things that was puzzling in the theory Um, it's accepted, you know, as standard science now because it's been experimentally verified. But as I say, there are other issues um, that this brings up that get much more subtle and and much more complicated.
1: Well, I think what I would like to do is try it in a specific case, which is to talk about um, sort of North American ideas about eternity, say, because, you know, this is our specific cultural context, right? And I think, For most people, the idea that time can flow at different rates in different places is just weird. You know, it's the kind of thing you'd expect in a science fiction movie, maybe, but it just doesn't apply to us. And yet, as we just said, you know, hey, every time you get on a plane, you're taking part in this experiment. But the reality is most of us have just at a popular cultural level, we just haven't accepted the Einsteinian idea of time right it it hasn't changed the way we see time Uh, right right. instead i think we still we mostly subscribe to the newtonian version of time that you know god's created a big clock in the background which is just ticking 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 the way it wants and uh time's just going to go on and even if the entire human race were to be extinguished time would just carry on as before always the same right
2: right and i i think you've introduced i actually have notes in front of me (laughs) as you're speaking, you've introduced two concepts that I, I want to parse apart for now, just for the sake of our listeners. You talked about eternity, which is a very interesting topic, and, and we can approach that from an Einsteinian model. And you also talked about linearity, which is a topic we've talked about before. And I think they're they're both important. So let's talk about linearity first, because what you said, I, I think is correct. And it, it was in my notes, even when I was thinking about this conversation last night that even though science adopts and uses the the model of Einstein, you know, to talk about time, to do physics, etc., there is this is exactly what I had said, there there's an undercurrent of this Newtonian view that time sort of began at the big bang and it's been running on linearly since then. And there's this kind of accompanying view that the direction of time is indicated by entropy, you know, things spreading apart, et cetera. And it fascinates me. I'm not going to name names, but um, since I'm working on a book about time myself, part of that is involved critiquing other authors. And one of the things that really surprises me is I see physicists who are writing popular books about time and they kind of drift back into this linear model rather than saying okay the einstein model is the one with the facts it's the one experimentally verified what is it really telling us about the nature of time and reality and instead they'll talk about einstein in a few chapters and then they'll talk about linearity uh this idea of entropy is entropy time does entropy prove that time moves in one direction and and i just want to you know, scream, because I think that's a really bad way of doing science and doing philosophy. So that's what I want to say about linearity, that I think you are right, that somehow it's, it's still affecting the way we view science. And of course, you and I have long agreed that it deeply affects, probably not in a good way, uh, the way we view nature, the way we view each other, the way we view community. Now... The issue of eternity is something a little bit different, because what's fascinating is that, in, again, in very rough terms, one of the things that spurred Einstein to develop his theories was thinking about a beam of light. And as you may know, the speed of light is, is sometimes called, in a sort of casual way, the speed limit of the universe. And Einstein imagined what would it be like to be traveling at light speed. So. If time is dilating more and more, the faster I go as V approaches C, C is the symbol of light speed in mathematics, if that happens, then eventually when V reaches C, I'll be in this kind of infinite stasis. Everything will be happening at once. And this, interestingly, as far as I've read too, nobody really explores what that means, they they kind of say, well, it's a limit and we can show it's a limit. Mathematically, it's pretty easy to show it's a limit because as you approach light speed, you need greater energy because your mass is also increasing uh, according to the, the Lorentz equations, the, the time dilation equations. But I think the consequence of that, of the infinite, uh, of approaching eternity, is something that has not really been looked at in physics or philosophy of physics. And that's, that's something we can talk about a little bit. And I think that has a very interesting parallel to your interests, which are religious ideas of eternity.
1: But what does eternity really mean? from a spiritual point of view, I see a few possibilities. One is that eternity is just a question of, it's just an expression of the quantity of time. Eternity is a really, really long time, in that, you know, I may live till I'm 80, I die, and then if I get eternity, then I guess I get to live to be 81, 82, 83, 83 million, 830 million, right? Like time just keeps going. This vision of time, it's sort of like a train track, which you just see extending infinitely into the distance. And each one of the slats on the train track is a year, say. And there's a line across that train track, which is where you died. And you just walk over that line and you keep walking. So it's a quantity version of time, which is very much like the Newtonian model of time, right? Which says there's an absolute clock. And eternity is just all the time on that clock, right? But the weird thing about that is that if you believe in that kind of eternity, which I think is kind of the basic version of eternity that most people carry around in their back pocket, that means really that you're in eternity now, like right now, because you're on that train track. Correct. And it doesn't matter whether you're on the other side of your death or this side of your death. You're on the train track, which is going to go on forever. So congratulations, everybody. You're living an eternal life right now. But of course, it doesn't feel anything like that. You know, that's a sort of unsatisfying revelation because none of us feel like, wow, my life is saved. I'm living eternal life right now. It doesn't feel anything like that, right? Um, And secondly, you know, part of that letdown is that, you know, when you read the Bible, it seems to be promising something more special than, hey, what you've got right now. Exactly, Right? right. You know, like there's something different about eternity than just more time like this.
2: No, and I think the, the Christian view, you know, blocks it out in, in a different way. It says that there is this current life, which, yeah, in the grand timeline of things is, is a segment of infinity. But first of all, you know, it's an earthbound life. It's an imperfect life. And I think the promise, and you're the minister in this conversation, but, you know, <laughs> you'd agree that the promise is that upon one's death or sometimes subsequent to one's death, uh, one can have a, an eternal existence after that that is qualitatively different, right? We're not stuck in this this mundane world. We're in a transcendent world. Um, and, and also we're we're living in a different way in that that, you know, portion of our lives that goes from our death on to forever. Correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it does promise a better life than we're having now. Um, You know, because we won't be hungry. We won't be hurt by other people. There's, you know, all the bad things that happen now won't happen in the future uh, once we die and we live this eternal life. But in a way, that's still keeping time the same, but it's changing the geography, right?
2: (laughs) (laughs) To a certain extent. But what's interesting, as you were talking, I, I think it changes the geography only in a very limited way. And so... You know, I think we're approaching the point of the conversation where I'm going to throw you the real curveball that that I often do or you do it to me. That, yeah, the geography is different, right? That you're, you're part of the eternity, you're here on Earth, right, with each other. And part of the eternity uh, after death, you are in communion with God, right, in the transcendent realm. But what I think you're implying, either willingly or not, is that there's still this sort of mundane clock idea, Right. So I'm in heaven. I'm in the clouds. Right. Eating grapes, having these great conversations with Socrates uh, and Socrates in the apology. He talks about why he's not afraid of death and he offers several reasons. And one of them is he says, well, you no, know, after death could be really cool. I'll be with all the great heroes of the past, hanging out, having these great conversations. And I love that. But I, you know, what you're implying, obviously, is that eh, it's kind of mundane, right? I'm still sitting in a, in a living room somewhere. And so I think, you know, this is where we can really start again to, to look at things in a different way. I'll throw you this curveball that it's because I think our ideas of eternity are really kind of boring and banal because there are other versions of eternity. So for example, uh, not that I would ever advocate this, but people who do drugs will tell you that they feel that they've lived like a million years in in two minutes, right? And science fiction plays on this, you know, one of the really better quality episodes of Star Trek: The Next Generation is where uh, Captain Picard is zapped by this alien device and he lives an entire lifetime in just a few minutes and he, gets married and he grows old on this planet, he has this wonderful life. One of the things that, you know, I've been interested in and written about, and this podcast is not about my work, but just by way of example, is how an infinite amount of time, how an eternity can be wrapped up in a moment. And I think, you know, if we're dealing with something like the nature of God, you know, who was it that said, no, God is very subtle And so I think that the actual eternity in the religious model must be something way more subtle than, you know, what we were talking about, which you, you know, I think correctly kind of critiqued. You said, yeah, this is kind of still a really boring clock model.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, if you look a little more deeply into, as you said, God is subtle. And this is one of the things which people don't appreciate about the Bible very much is the Bible generally doesn't tell you how you should think about the Bible aside from the fact that you should read it, it doesn't explain itself. Um, Part of the spiritual journey is is seeing uh, deeper and deeper levels in what's written there. So you sort of start off with the Sunday school level of, you know, God's nice, God's love. And then over the course of your lifetime, you can see more and more depth and interesting things in the same stories that you've been reading your entire life. And I think that this is true of the definition of eternity as well, in that, as you were saying, Right. You know, we've been talking about eternity in a sort of quantitative model, whereas eternity, as people who have used drugs have experienced, is qualitatively different in terms of of the kind of time that you get. Right. You get a different quality of time if you're having a mystical or a drug induced experience, because suddenly, yeah, you feel like you're seeing all of Mm -hmm. time at once, say. And that's something which is actually in the Bible, but it just doesn't say explicitly that it's in the Bible. And an example of that would be how prophecy works, okay? If you read the New Testament, the Gospels are constantly stopping to say, and Jesus did this so that he could fulfill such and such a prophecy. This happens over and over and over again. And so you get this sense that Jesus is sort of walking through his life doing kind of theological theater so that people will see that promises that were made 500, 600, 800 years ago are now coming true, and this proves that he's the Messiah. What's interesting, though, is that there are people in the Bible who fulfill prophecy who have no idea that they're fulfilling prophecy. So uh, when Jesus is crucified, he's up on the cross, you know, he's dying this horrible, agonizing death. Down at the bottom, we're told that there were three or four soldiers, Roman soldiers, who couldn't have known anything about Jewish prophecy, who are rolling dice, playing some kind of gambling game, gambling for his clothes, And they've decided they're going to tear up, back then they only wore two pieces of clothes, right? A cloak and then the tunic underneath. So they're going to tear up his coat into four pieces, but they're gambling for his tunic because it was made of one whole cloth, so it's more valuable. This is a direct lift out of one of the Psalms. So the Psalms are written, I don't know, 500 years before. And in one of David's Psalms, he says they'll gamble for my clothes. They're they're going to gamble for the Messiah's clothes. In writing that detail in, we're being told, basically, that time may be linear, but it's also folding back on itself, right? And that the moment that's happening under the cross by these centurions who have no idea what they're doing, no idea that they're fulfilling a prophecy, they are making a prophecy come true, and that means that when David or whoever wrote the psalm wrote that prophecy down, you know, within the sort of literary construct of the Bible, the... Jesus at the cross was happening when the prophecy was written, and at the bottom of the cross, as they were rolling the dice, David's prediction of it is happening as well. It's like these two moments in time are bending over and kissing each other. So this timeline, which seems so linear to us, is actually folding like an accordion. If you imagine, you know, like accordion paper, right? Which means that there's this constant interplay between the present of the New Testament and the prophecies, which are spread out over hundreds of years. It's not just like one prophecy. It's tons of prophecies. So the Bible is sort of saying, you know, time isn't just linear. Time cross-references itself all the time. And then that begs the question of, well, who sees time like that? Because we don't right? You and I are walking on that train track, or at least we feel like it, where we can't just jump to the future by a force of will. We can't do that. We, we're stuck living in the present, right? One step at a time, one minute at a time. But the Bible's saying, oh, actually, there's another way of experiencing time, where time folds over on itself, where time's not linear
2: for the audience's sake you had said this to me the other day in a conversation we had a casual conversation and something popped to mind which i forgot to tell you at the time and so it's perfect now to discuss so i i want to again for the sake of anyone who's listening i want to sort of reiterate what steve said to kind of refine it and then show you that again it gets even deeper and even weirder i think than steve expected Basically, it's saying it's not an example of the block model of time. What Steve is saying is very precise and very important that let's say you have this prophecy about the Roman soldiers and that prophecy happens 500 years before the event itself, right? When Christ is on the cross. And Steve used this very interesting term that it's not so much that it's a God's eye view of seeing both events at once. That's the block model and that's different conversation. What Steve said is something more interesting. It's like the prophecy happens, you know, at point A 500 years before and the crucifixion happens at point B with the gambling for the clothes 500 years subsequent and you can fold those two points together, like two points on a piece of paper, folding them together, and they have some relational quality. And what's important there is the fact that it could be a thousand years difference, or 2,000, right, or 10,000. And it's, again, it's not the fact that they're simultaneous, but the fact that there is this ability to fold it all together, I think the term used was like an accordion, right? It collapsed all together. Now, what Steve may or may not know is that, you know, when he said this, I thought, well, you know, there's this physicist who talked about this, a very famous physicist who presented this view of reality itself, not just time, in this exact same way. So this physicist, David Bohm, B-O-H-M, Uh, who was from right near where I am now. He lived in wilkes Pennsylvania, and I'm from Philadelphia. He had this idea that he called the implicate order. And this is something that's still being wrestled with by physicists because it's very subtle and it's part physics and it's part philosophy and a little mysticism thrown in as well. But I think, and again, this has not been well explored, you can take what Einstein says about traveling on a beam of light, which brings all those points together, right? It enfolds events together. And you can take Bohm's idea, which is that reality itself is enfolded, right? It's what he called the implicate order. And we're getting close to then, I think, a a description of reality. And the way religion deals with it is through these very interesting stories of prophecy. And the last thing I'll say before I throw it back to Steve is that I also want to make clear to the audience then that prophecy is not about predicting the future what a prophet does in any culture christian indigenous etc the prophet has this alleged power of folding space and time to experience things together Forget this linear model that I'm 500 years prior looking 500 years in the future. If you really look at prophetic systems, be it the I Ching, you know, in Chinese culture, or I found out recently West Africans have a similar divination system, none of them make that claim. They talk much more about this enfoldment. So Steve's idea here is very important. It has a parallel in physics, and what that means, we don't know, but I think there's something really fruitful here in terms of talking about time.
1: Yeah, and I think that what the Bible is offering to us is this idea that God made time, but God is not subject to time in the linear way of looking at it. And there's other options. And you know, mystics, through all of history, have said that they've had experiences where they have felt very, very close to God, and they've had these amazing visions of everything happening at once. We usually think of that geographically, right? That somehow they're able to see everywhere in the universe. But they often make it feel like, no, they're at the cross as well as at the end of time, and it's all happening at once, right? And so what we take as regular time is, like we said, boring time, And boring time is not the only thing which human beings have as our um, inheritance, as it were. We are able to experience time in very, very different ways, in ways which religions, whether pagan or Christian or other major faiths, promise is more like how divine time works, you know. And one of the things which, Mercia Iliade wrote a great book about this. He wrote this uh, uh, book about just how in indigenous cultures, often when people need to be healed, and they'll be taken to a shaman and, you know, like the Navajo will do this, where they will sing the song of creation, sometimes for days. And they'll do like a sand painting on the ground, which represents some aspect of the creation story, which is specifically related to the type of ailment the uh, person is suffering from. And they'll put the person on the sand painting. So they're basically back at the origin of everything, back at the source of creative power for both space and time. And by being reintegrated with that, they are their body and mind is brought back into alignment because they're back at the time when everything was aligned. There's this sense that we human beings have access to sacred power, which is the origin of space and time. And that is actually kind of our birthright. You know, like that's, that's, that's where we're, we are constantly invited to do that. And faiths suggest that by reenacting events over and over and over again. Like the mass, for instance, is a reenactment of a particular night in Christ's life, which is powerful and is supposed to make us feel like we are with Jesus literally, you know, through the host and the wine. And indigenous cultures have their own version of this, you know, the dream time among Australian Aborigines. This is part of what we're supposed to be able to have. But our problem is in the West, we have lost sight of this, and we see it as sort of an exotic spirituality, not something that's for us. And as a result, we get stuck with this really banal version of time, which is strictly minute by minute, day by day, and then you die. And I don't know, maybe that's why we have lost faith in time you know, like we've lost faith in the future because it seems so boring and mundane to us, not because it is, but just because we've adopted this very, very narrow model of it.
2: And it seems kind of inaccessible. And that's a word that, you know, I use in my book a lot that I'm working on now about the accessibility of events, right, in in time. And and I think, you know, Steve has kind of turned the conversation again, and I want to sort of reinforce some things he said. People should... Uh, watch a great video that I guess is from the 80s or 90s and it's a Peter Gabriel song it's called Digging in the Dirt and there's a very interesting history behind why he wrote that song and he wrote it when he was going through very difficult personal crisis himself and the song is exactly about what Steve is saying going back to the origin and it's interesting how universal this is in cultures that healing takes place going back you know and even something which people really reject nowadays which is sort of freudian psychoanalytic theory because people view it as very facile you know childhood regression etc i i think freud either explicitly or intuitively was kind of uh channeling an indigenous idea which is that yeah you have to go back and there's many many different examples of this you know jung has Uh, his own model. He had his own model of this kind of going back to the roots of things to find out what went wrong. And now I'll be the one who talks about religion. So one of the things that I loved teaching when I taught philosophy was the Adam and Eve story. So you have to imagine that I'm teaching a class of maybe Greek philosophy, or I used to teach uh, a Taoist text. And then at some point in the semester, always, we'd have to Stop, and I'd have to tell the students about the Adam and Eve story, because nobody has a religious education anymore. And I said, you know, the Adam and Eve story is about exactly that, about us always remembering to go back and see where things went awry. Like, where did we get sick, Um, et cetera. And I forget how Steve put it, but yeah, this is like our gift, our birthright to be able to do it. Uh, But we've lost the ability. We're very presentist now, and I can talk about that at length. I think much of our current political crisis is based on this overweening presentism. But also, I think on a personal level, we feel we're kind of trapped in the present, and the past is forbidden, or scary, or unimportant, or inaccessible, or that it's dead. And it's not, right? It's very much alive and that uh, Steve used the word ritual, which is a word he and I use in many conversations. What we've lost is the rituals needed to go to those places in the past and go through those kind of processes that he was talking about, healing to use a kind of new age word. Uh, But I think it's absolutely correct that that's, that's an issue.
1: I think our, you know, our secular version of time, obviously, is very interested in progress. We should always be moving forward and everything we do tomorrow should be better than what we're doing today. I think a lot of us have lost faith in that. But, you know, that's still the official version that we have. And the problem with progress is it disdains the past.
2: That's correct.
1: Everything tomorrow will be better than it was yesterday, so why would you ever want to go back to the past? What wisdom can be there, right? I've heard professors bemoan the fact that, um, you know, as periodicals go online, students have no, you know, uh, like graduate students and university students don't really see the point of going to the library. And that's where all the old books are, right, and the old periodicals. So even physically, we're getting to the point where we disdain the past. Now, the flip side of that is, in some ways, it's never been easier to get your hands on really old texts because they don't have copyright restrictions, so they're easy to digitize, which I've certainly been enjoying in a great way. But nonetheless, overall, we think the past is past and is probably useless and wrong. So the idea of communing with the past is problematic and rejected. And the idea that the past that there could be some kind of sacred origin moment, which is full of all the potential of the universe. That's a really foreign idea for us now. And and not least because, you know, you mentioned the Big Bang earlier. The Big Bang is an inhospitable moment, right? It's kind of hard in the secular imagination to imagine going back to the Big Bang to do anything but get the blown up, right? And yet, weirdly, you know, you were mentioning earlier that a beam of light travels obviously at the speed of light. And in that case, it's experiencing, to the extent that we can say a beam of light experiences anything, it's experiencing eternity in that, you know, time is frozen for it, right? It's sort of at the moment where it started. And what's interesting, right, is that we are bathed in cosmic background radiation all the time. You know, all you have to do is turn on a TV set and go to, you know, or a radio and just go to the space where you hear nothing but crackling. And some of that crackling is the sound of, the initial first light that the universe gave out, having been red shifted down into the radio wave bandwidth just because space has been stretching. So the light is no longer you know, visible light or even gamma light, but it's now radio wave light. <laughs> that cosmic background radiation, that sort of first light of creation is always stuck in the first moment of time or it's time, anyway, not necessarily, right? So if we say, oh, well, the Big Bang's a long time ago, well, actually, the Big Bang is flowing through you right now, all the time, exactly, everywhere.
2: And anytime we look at any stars, of course, we're looking to the past, because the you know, classic thing of how long the light has traveled to us. But I would, I would add to your point, again, there's some subtle subtext to everything you said. So, you know, you talked about how as moderns, we're very focused on this linear thing, this pejorative view of the past, looking towards the future and progress. But I would say we're also in this kind of uh, schizoid frame of mind about that because as uh, Steve knows, I, I play a lot of music and I play guitar and I play bass and I compose music. And and one of the things you do when you uh, put together music and you know, I do kind of electronic and pop is that even in highly abstract forms of electronic music, you have a coda, you have a return, right? So you'll you'll play out a motif, and you'll then go off to the races, but you'll return to that motif, you know? And, And even the most contemporary music always has this idea of return. And, you know, most people would acknowledge too that as you get older, you go back to some elements of your childhood, you reconnect with old friends, uh, biologically, you know, my daughter and I always joke like you go back to losing your teeth and and having to eat applesauce and do all things like that. Like, so we we kind of intuitively know that we exist in a cyclical model of time, but then there's this overarching societal pressure to to look linearly forward. Um, and then also, as I mentioned, I just want to sort of give an explanation of why I said this affects our politics because, we view the solutions to our problems all as being in the future. And also we view every political or social model of the past as racist, sexist, uh, stupid. It's, if you study history of science, I remember learning this when I was in Toronto in 1989. It's called the Whiggish view of history. Where we're smart and they were dumb. You know, and, and that was about science. And I realize now even a lot of the political discussions, like we're enlightened and they were unenlightened. Where in actual fact, you no, know, it's cyclical. There were enlightened people back then and there were unenlightened people, and there were people thinking in, in ways that were more communally oriented and not. And so, you know, I agree with Steve that this kind of linear narrative is is very, very uh distressing. And yes, we don't commune with the past at all and then steve also had this great idea that he just mentioned which i really like which is this the past is a reservoir full of potential and anybody who's an artist knows what that is because all great artists are unafraid of their childhood and their past and the past and they constantly go back to mine artistic ideas to mine traumas even inspiration but as a culture we don't do that. We view the past, exactly as Steve said, as kind of dead, right? And having nothing to offer. Which again is contrary to everything in art, music, biology, you name it.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like it's like we're giving ourselves a cultural lobotomy, right? Where we're saying, okay, we're going to re- we're going to just ignore most of the wisdom that we've inherited and just try and start from fresh, right? And which really just trans- because you can never actually really do that it just means that bad ideas get to be represented <laughs> because because the good ideas which rejected them and showed why they're bad ideas have been lost to us. So we just end up having to weirdly relive past problems over and over again in this I'm, some sort of strange ritual having rejected ritual and the eternal return we're condemned to do it but unconsciously and with all sorts of terrible consequences. So that's an argument, folks. For uh, you know, let's try and be open-minded and have uh, have a perspective which allows us to take the best from the past, but also have dialogues like this where science and faith get a chance to actually check notes with each other. Because this is the kind of discussion which rarely happens anymore. I just I'm I'm a relatively new minister. I'm just coming up on like two years. And I got all the way through seminary without having taken a single science course, not once. It was never offered on the curriculum, wasn't suggested on the curriculum. The only, the closest thing we ever got to science was occasionally a mention of psychology. And, you know, that's... That's very different from physics and chemistry and cosmology. So, which is ironic given the fact that, let's face it, you know, the Bible starts off talking about how the whole universe works, not just how moral agency works. So, you know, we could be forgiven for having an interest in these things. And yet the division of labor in our culture has become such that science will deal with the observable world and religion will deal with morality and the subjective world. And, um... That is a division which is dangerous for everybody. Um, these sorts of dialogues should happen more. Not so we can police each other, but just so that we can compare notes and go, wow, you don't think time's absolute either? Fabulous. So I think, Ben,
2: that's probably where we should end it. Okay. We have enough material for... There, there are more things to talk about. I mean, about. stuff we haven't talked about for, yeah, like a dozen other yes. uh, podcasts.
1: Hey, Ben, thanks a lot for uh, coming by. Thanks for uh, having this talk with me. I hope we will do this
2: again. Thank you for inviting me, and I hope we do it again as well.
0: That was Reverend Stephen Milton and Professor Ben Olshan talking about time and eternity. The book by Mircea Eliad, which Stephen mentioned, is entitled Myth and Reality. Dr. Olson's latest book, where he examines the nature of space, is called Deciphering Reality, Stimulations, Tests, and Designs. And now, before we go, we're going to listen to a track from Dr. Olson's band, Ben Baru, called The French Blitz. Today. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, please subscribe. The Rooster Crows is produced by Lawrence Park Community Church, a progressive Christian church in Toronto, Canada. You can find us at www.lawrenceparkchurch.ca. We also stream our services live every Sunday morning, and the links are on our website. You can also find videos of past sermons and choir performances on our YouTube channel. Thanks for taking the time to listen this week. Peace.